1: Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
0: Hey, everybody. Today's guest is Rachel Bowen, bassist, lyricist, and songwriter for the Toms River, New Jersey rock band, Skid Row. Together, we take a deep dive into the writing, recording, and inspiration behind their 1989 smash hit single, 18 in Life, taken from their self-titled debut album. I told Rachel that I always felt Skid Row had a lot more to offer both musically and especially lyrically than most of their 80s and early 90s counterparts, 18 in Life being a prime example of this. The imagery and storytelling within the lyric is great and highly relatable. We talked about producer Michael Wagner's involvement and how he was the perfect person to take their great ideas and expound on them, improving the parts that were already awesome and weeding out the parts that weren't. We both agree that the best producers work as armchair psychologists, getting into the psyche of the musicians and making the music truly come alive. It was cool to hear Rachel talk about first hearing the mix come back from the song and being totally blown away. After all, this was their debut album, and he had previously never heard his band sound as massive and as great as this. For all this and a story about jet skiing in between bass performances, stick around. This is a good one
2: you heard to make a podcast hey hey have you heard Krista makes a podcast hey hey have you heard Krista makes a podcast hey hey have you heard
0: Krista makes, hey, hey, makes a podcast Rachel how's it going
3: it's going great man it's been a uh, an eventful year musically believe it or not
0: <laughs> well you you know you guys are uh what i what i call lifers you just never stopped you're you're still out there year after year doing your thing and uh i know you were busy this morning uh talk, talking to your your record label about your new record that, that's always fun
3: yeah yeah you know just bouncing ideas off of each other and getting right to the brink of sort of an argument but not really uh, let's not say argument let's say disagreement but yeah it's uh things are going really well, man. You know, we got to have this record deal with ear music out of Germany who did, uh, they do Alice Cooper and deep purple and things are going well going well and got a lot of shows on the books
0: for this year. That's very cool. Well, for the listeners, uh, Skid Row formed uh, back in 1986. And I want you to take us back uh, to that time period because not saying you guys didn't pay your dues. Every band has a different story. Some bands uh, have to, to to fight it out in the clubs for 10 years before they get a deal. But it, it seems relatively quick. Uh, I know that uh, you and Dave, uh, the Snake Sabo, had formed the band in 86, Uh, And then I believe Scotty and Rob came shortly thereafter. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Before Skid Row, actually, Scotty Hill and I had a band together. And then when we were looking for another guitar player, Scotty came in and uh, it just, it went from like one lead guitar to two lead guitars and it just kind of really shaped the whole skid row sound
0: and i know that uh, of course dave uh has history i believe he went to school with john bon jovi mm-hmm. uh and uh at the time uh, bon jovi's manager was doc mcgee who took you under his wing so it just seems like the next thing you knew you you uh had a had a singer named matt fallon who i believe just did maybe some demos with you guys uh,
3: he, he did shows too and uh right up, he, he was there right up until about 88 i guess you know, um, or maybe 87, something like that. But uh, yeah, we did a bunch of shows with Matt and and a uh, ton of demos.
0: And then, uh, of course, uh, I want to say it said 88. I'm thinking it was probably late summer, early fall. You guys were at Royal Recorders in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, of all places, mm-hmm. with Michael Wagner making, making the first record. Yeah. So uh, today we're going to talk about 18 in Life. Take us back. Where was that written between 86 and 88, if you recall? Um,
3: well... We wrote it, and uh, we were all living at home at the time. Snake uh, was living in Sayreville. I was in Tom's River, New Jersey, and um, you know we just drive back and forth and write. Uh, he actually worked in Tom's River, so a lot of times we'd write at my parents' house, and whether it was in my room or out on the back porch, and we uh, he goes, "Man, I got this riff." He goes, "It it kind of has an Aerosmith feel to it, kind of a Kings and Queen type of thing." And uh, he played it, and he was singing some of the melody and told me some of the lyrics. And immediately, as soon as he started playing, and I was like, "Dude, that is so haunting! Like that is so, so haunting!" And things just kind of started falling into place really quick with that song. And it, it went, it had, it started off a completely different topic and a completely different story, then just turned into the story of a, a kid losing his way, and the kid, the character Ricky, who. I'm sure everybody in their life knows a guy like this that just can't get out of his own way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that—that's how that the whole storyline started evolving.
0: Well, I always love this song, and I picked this one. Obviously, you guys have a, have a number of hits, uh, especially on the on the first two records. Uh, the breakout single, the the leadoff single from uh, the record Skid Row, self titled that was released on January twenty fourth, eighty nine, was Youth Gone Wild. <laughs> Awesome song. Uh, And of course, uh, the ballad from the record, I Remember You.
4: It's
0: just... Uh, stratospheric for you guys—it sent, sent you into the stars. It was—it was a massive hit. But this one, you know, it's interesting looking back at that time period. By the late '80s, you know, a lot of my friends were kind of getting tired with the the whole glam thing, and it be- started to really become cliche. Mm-hmm. And you were one of the bands that stuck out with this song in particular. It wasn't about partying and women and and, and whatever else. This had a story behind it, like like all the great uh, songwriters. So, how did this lyric come about? Well
3: um like like i said it first started off uh, as a song about snake's older brother and, and his of uh, going to vietnam and one person and coming back a different person and then it's just started changing as we as the lyrics developed and the story developed it started becoming more general instead of being a story about that, that one person is telling, it It developed in a story that a lot of people could tell because, I mean, let's face it, we all know a guy like the character in the song. Sure. And, you know, sometimes it got so dark that we're like, OK, let's back off some of these lyrics and let's just change this. But that's how it all developed. And it really after we had that in mind of what the actual storyline was, it was everything was very organic and it just all came together really quick there were some changes here and there like the one line you can't think of dying when the bottle's your best friend was originally you can't think of dying when the devil's your best friend but one of us said man i think the devil is it's just too cartoony and stuff like that when it's just being too general let's just say okay this guy has a problem and he killed his friend because he was all messed up and So it just kind of developed like that. And then, uh, you know, we we are storytellers and, and a lot of our songs do tell stories. I don't know whether that's a Jersey thing or not, because I mean, Springsteen is like the king of it.
0: Man, you took the you took the words out of my mouth. Yeah. I'm telling you, I don't care if it's the hard rock guys, the spring scenes, the metal guys, the punk guys. They all tell it's like this rough and tumble uh, from the streets type uh, uh, story, right? We are
3: we are all storytellers, man. I mean, we,
0: you get four guys from Jersey in a room, and the stories
3: just never end, <laughs> never end.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and one's trying that's... to top the other one, you know? Sure, and I'll I'll tell you, looking back. I'm I'm surprised because MTV, you know, I think sometimes maybe they they use this as an excuse. They didn't like the song or they didn't know how to say no to this particular manager, but they would use the excuse of we can't air this because yeah. it talks about a gun a couple times in the song. You know, yeah. it's amazing that uh, that it did get on because it was weird. It was weird back then.
3: Well, yeah. And there were there were a lot of MTV pushbacks. Uh, one in particular is they uh there was one edit where the the character of ricky actually pointed the gun at his friend's head and his friend swats it away they didn't like that so you just see the him grabbing the gun then you see the other dude swatting it away in hindsight that was the right thing to do that was really the <laughs> right thing to do for real especially the way things are now you know what i mean sure. um sure. with as crazy as, as things have happened with, with shootings and stuff that was the absolute right thing to do um there was another a scene where there was going to be blood that was running down the sidewalk into a sewer that we were going to film and we were like this probably isn't a good idea that we we didn't even we just nixed it it didn't get it didn't even get filmed to be uh to be cut or or to be requested to be cut the thing is when you tell a story uh, when you tell a story to a huge audience, uh, you have to definitely tell it responsibly. You know what I mean? Uh, because sure. there's a fine line between telling a story and an opinion. And it could, you know, so you, if you want to tell your story, get your story across, you have to be really responsible about it.
0: There you go. Was Doc McGee an integral part in, in getting your, your deal with Atlantic?
3: Yes, without a doubt. Once, I mean, John and Richie were a ton of help. They were a ton of help getting us indoors to play our our demos. I mean, we, Snake and I would go to New York with a, you know, bunch of cassettes and we'd have meetings. Sometimes we'd sit there all day waiting for them to let us in. Sometimes they'd take us right in. And and, um, Atlantic was one of the the labels we went up to that that were really keen on the band and they 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 courted us for a long time um but yeah we we would go to new york in the freezing cold or in the blazing heat and just uh just tough it out you know do we have enough money for a cab and to get back home on the train (laughs) no okay let's walk (laughs) that's where it looks like we're walking uptown you know so uh yeah it, it was a lot of great memories actually but yeah doc uh was very instrumental in getting to the deal to where it was and you know because we were atlantic was after us and after us and we felt really comfortable with dorothy and with jason uh a- the AR, and we felt really comfortable about it
0: is that jason flom
3: J- jason flom and, and dorothy yeah. carvello and then you know and and you know we we had the the uh you know tun Jerum and doug morris and ahmed erdogan came to show and all that stuff and it was it was a big deal you know but um in the 11th hour there was interest from geffen and doc called he said okay we're going to sign with geffen and we're like well what about all of our friends at atlantic you know <laughs> we, we've developed relationships with them and i should say this was the 11th hour they came back and it was for a little bit more money and which we were kids, we didn't care about the money. We wanted to go where we thought was a good home for us. And the fact that their idea, the producer that Geffen wanted us to work with and the and the r guy himself, it would scrap like all of our songs except for two. And uh, it was really weird, man. It's like the only two that they kept out of 30 that we played at a showcase was Making a Mess and 18 in Life. They said, start writing. And we were just like whoa man this is crazy we're just starting from square (laughs) one man and then uh that's That's why and that was another reason why we loved atlantic because they love the songs and and they're like man this represents you guys so perfectly this music and because we got to know them on a personal basis and, and that's really important so then they came back and before we even got pen to paper with geffen we signed with atlantic and it was a done deal
0: well producer michael wagner i mean he's just uh the, the list of stuff he's done everything from motley Crue, wasp overkill great white striper poison alice cooper he mixed master of puppets by metallica uh the man the man is a legend how did he come into the picture
3: he, uh, he you know did you know he mixed like the rock version of black cat by janet jackson
0: i i, I read that <laughs> yeah, which is which a... is which is which is amazing yeah, that's and awesome. so cool <laughs> And obviously we knew his his work he was high demand then how you know how you yeah. guys were able to, to snatch him up i'm sure doc and yeah. atlantic helped with that
3: yeah well we met with a bunch of producers and we just you know we liked some of them but we just didn't vibe and, and a lot of them it seemed like almost like a takeover more than a okay we're working with you type of thing and snake and i would always just be like like and all the guys were like how do we feel about this it's like well we love the record that he did but is he going to change us like we don't want to you know we of course we're going to listen to people and take creative criticism but we don't want to lose the essence of what we knew skid row was so when we met with michael we were playing in providence rhode island at the place called do you remember the living room up in Providence?
0: I never played there, but I, okay. I, I, I've heard of it. Yeah, just a yeah.
3: big box. <laughs> it was a big <laughs> rectangle box. One of those. Box. Yeah. So Jason Flom and I believe Doc or Scott McGee brought Michael to the show. And he watched and, you know, he was just coming off of like the, the stuff he did with um, White Lion that was blowing up and all that. Mm-hmm. And so we're sitting there at this grimy table in the club that is now just a. You know we had played and now it just uh the it was either in a club No, we met him in the club but then we had a talk i believe in the lobby of the hotel and snake and i were sitting directly across the table from each other and we were talking and the one thing michael said and you know obviously he had the, all of our respect right from the beginning but the one thing he said is i will let i want the band to be the band and i immediately kicked snake under the table and went cool 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 and then we walked away we just said to jason we got we got to get him we got to get him he gets us he totally gets us and he he's just like the funniest person he gets our stupid sense of humor and and just the ball busting and all that and and it just right then and there we knew we're like now we're going to do great things with him and we certainly did
0: all the greatest producers they let the band be themselves, but they elevate what they're hearing.
3: That's exactly right. He took good parts and made them great. He took good songs and made them great songs. And yeah, it was, you know, for us, all of us, it was the first time working with a professional producer. I mean, we always work with the guys that own the studios, which were great, but now we are working on a level that we've never worked before. And he was such a good mentor of how to handle this kind of stuff. And to to work in the studio with michael is like okay say you're having just a shit day and before you even get to the studio and he'll give you are you okay yeah i'm fine i'm fine Let, let's uh let's hit this i i want to forget about this argument i had or whatever you know i want to forget about my dog getting hit by a car or whatever and we work and he and he's like starts clicking the lights off let's go jet skiing and we go down to the lake <laughs> and go down to Lake Geneva and get on jet skis for like three hours, go back to the studio, turn the lights back on and we'd start nailing stuff. And he'd do that with all of us, you know? Yeah. It's because he's like going into a situation and trying to get a good take when your head isn't in it is a waste of your time. It's a waste of everyone's time. You're just going to frustrate yourself where it's going to spill over into tomorrow when you're trying to do mm-hmm. this again. Fuck it. Let's go. Let's go shoot you know bow and arrows let's go shoot guns Let, you know let's go blow up fireworks and you know
0: that is so cool that you that you brought that up because i've always said the best producers are are uh, uh poor man psychologists oh, really
3: absolutely absolutely you
0: know we we worked with my band worked with rob cavallo some years ago and rob was was the best at it and he didn't just uh act uh on behalf of the whole band he would individually know how to talk to each of us oh yeah and say yeah. hey he'd <laughs> take you apart those are the best producers man and yeah it sound it sound sounds like michael michael was uh, was absolutely the right guy for this now the track was released on june 16th 1989 uh it was written by yourself uh, and and dave uh, dave the snake the album had 11 songs on it. And here's something I want to know. Did the label, did Doc, did you guys know what the singles were because what I found really interesting that 18 and Life was at number 5 on the record. Youth Gone Wild was number 7 and I remember you was all the way at number 10 before the 11th track. Typically your your hits are are, are higher up yeah. uh, on, on on the track listing. Did you guys know you had a hit with 18 and Life?
3: No. Um okay, so After Youth Gone Wild, we're like, okay, obviously you dream your whole life that you have a hit song. When it happens, you're like, wow, how is it? Like, what do I do now? (laughs) I have no idea what to do now. So, and like the the splash that that made was just ridiculous, way beyond anything that we could have imagined. So we're like, okay, we got to come back with something really good. Like, but. at at then the typical move would be go go with the ballad go with the full-on acoustic ballad love song and you're golden our worry was if we did that because most bands after they did that it was like okay where's their third single nothing you know yeah that was our biggest worry and the fact that snake and i didn't even want i remember you on on the album (laughs) <laughs> Not very smart on our part, but uh, <laughs> we, we were really resistant and, and we're just like, man, we don't we don't think it's a good idea to put that ballot out. And so it was actually Richie Sambora, and he said 18 in life should be your second single because it defines you guys. It defines where your head's at. It tells a great story, just like we were talking. Sure. And there was a lot of resistance. We, we dug that idea. We were like, this could be really cool we liked the idea a lot there was a lot of resistance there, um from management from the label but it sunk in and you know it was at this point it's just like all right sink or swim it's our our, our second could could be our last shot at anything no pun intended but it's like and, and it worked out and i think it yeah it had a really cool story albeit dark I I love the music to that song. I love playing it. And we were hitting on all cylinders, like all five of us, we were just getting everything right with the help of Michael. Yeah. But I think it transcended more than just hard rock kids. You know what I mean? And more than just, just girls with big hair. I think people heard it because, I mean, I was hearing it on like, pop radio like you know the oh yeah the real pop stations in new york city and i was hearing it uh, on stations i i never thought i would hear and i think it, it was it was had such a a big reach out to people that w- wouldn't necessarily even listen to skid row but then they heard that song they're like wow this song is really cool i dig it i know a guy like that so that that was uh that was I, i'm not going to say it, it was a uh calculated move but it was a really smart move to do that
0: well i'll tell you the the rollout from this record i think was perfect youth gone wild is is a is a tough song it's heavy uh could it could have fit on slave to the grind as far as I'm concerned uh then you you went with 18 to life as the second song I think uh I think Richie was right um it it's uh balladish but it's heavy yeah you know so you're kind of dipping your toes in, in a little bit of a softer territory and then you hit him with I remember you I think it's great i want to jump into the song now the song is three minutes and 51 seconds there's an eight bar intro uh the first eight seconds There's a guitar arpeggio that haunting guitar part that you're talking about it's so good Mm. based around that uh based around uh, e minor uh the guitar with the bass the bass is playing root notes in the eight seconds there's a few ride cymbal hits the bass goes up for an octave for a second and gets a little busier at 12 seconds there's this "Ah," that's let out i'm assuming that's sebastian that's kind of panned off left Uh, the bass continues to move. Uh, the ride cymbal is keeping time now with single hits on the one on the one beat. And at 14 seconds, there's a high-pitched guitar with three single notes that ring out before we get into verse one. Those little things, I, I'm always intrigued by the little ah. Was that like Michael's idea? Or was that just something Sebastian threw in there? It might have
3: been something he <laughs> threw in there. I'm not quite sure. I wasn't there during the vocals. Michael liked to close the studio when he was doing vocals. But uh yeah, I um a lot of stuff, you know, we we rehearsed. It could have it could have been there in rehearsal. I really don't know because we rehearsed a shit out of everything back then. We we like to be really precise before we step into the studio, at least we did then and uh that guitar thing you're talking about with scotty hill and he calls it seagulls yeah yeah you know what i mean i love it yeah and that that's that is scotty hill in a nutshell with those little things that just if that wasn't there it would still have mood but it wouldn't have that mood you know what I mean? Oh, like, sure. Like that the, those three notes summed up the 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 whole tone of the
0: song. You know what I mean? It made it even more haunting and something yeah. that uh, you know I was I talked to Huey Lewis recently and he there was this part in the song that was like an ah. Thing that he did in his song, I can't remember exactly what it was. And I said, "What was that?" He goes, "I, I was just kind of like warming up my voice and doing something between takes." Bob Clearmountain, who mixed the record, he threw it in there. I'm like, "What the heck is that?" You know. And back then, before Pro Tools, not everything was edited. You yeah. just get everything on tape. Exactly. It was just there. It's you know. There, right. some- sometimes, the- so that ah thing could have just been him. You know, maybe, I don't know, taking a puff off a cigarette. Who knows how that stuff gets in there? I just think it's so so cool, yeah. uh, especially back in the analog days. Verse one, uh, that intro guitar, the bass, and the symbol on the drum. Is still there that ride symbol
2: Ricky was a young boy he had a heart of stone need that to find me with this me got through came from the get town talk like so no one could take the
0: town no. had- Ricky was a young boy he had a heart of stone Live nine to five, and he worked his fingers to the bone. Just barely out of school. Came from the edge of town. Fought like a switchblade so no one could take him down. Oh, no. It kind of says what it says. It
3: says what it says, and I like to be a little more poetic about stuff. I believe that first line, when it was the other storyline, was had a heart of gold, and then we kind of kept it like that, but I'm like, this dude wouldn't have a heart of gold. This is contradictory to what this story is about. So we changed it to heart of stone. It's and, tougher. Yeah. And then the, um we couldn't think of uh, uh, like, we were, we were writing fought like a what, fought like a what. And I was just, I, all of a sudden, I don't know why I thought of West side story when I go, fought like a switchblade and we were like, yes. And you know, yeah. And it just kind of sums up a kid that may not have the the greatest home life. And that just kind of spills out into his social skills, you know, and, and he always had his guard up, you know, no one could take him down. His guard was always up and he felt it had to be and it didn't necessarily have to.
0: On the first half of verse one on the line, live nine to five, and he worked, unworked. The d- big drums come in, the big stereo guitars come in and ring out over the second half of verse one. On the second half, uh, love these little nuances. Uh, came from the edge of town on that line, there's a guitar feedback swell panned off to the left. Mm-hmm. On the switchblade line, uh, between the, that and the last line uh, of verse one, the stereo guitars are back in, and there's a really cool... Pinch harmonic that happens before you go into go into pre-chorus one. How much did the song evolve, if you can recall, from the demo to like at this point in the song? Was there was there changes? Was the intro shorter? Do you do you remember?
3: Yes, uh, it was. Dynamics were added more than anything. I mean, the arrangement was still pretty much the same. We changed the bridge very, very, very slightly. Not chord-wise, just, just like dynamics, you know, like crescendo-wise. And that was just one tiny little thing. But those little nuances, like the Scotty Hill nuances and and, and the, those pinched harmonics and stuff, those were probably uh, something that happened as time went on, you know? I know Scotty was doing those, what he calls the seagulls, in the beginning from, <laughs> yeah. from pre-production with Michael. That That's pretty much when that started, I believe. Uh, now and now you have me wondering, I want to go back and listen to the original demo we did with Matt Fallon, but I, can't, I don't know where the hell it is.
0: Everything somehow ends up on YouTube sooner or later, know, as, as we all as, as we all know. Yeah. Um, on the pre-chorus, the drum feel changes here. The, the stereo guitars go to eighth note, like kind of palm mutes. But it this part is tough. This is like one of the heaviest parts of the song in the pre-chorus. Mm-hmm. He had no money. No,
2: no good at home. Walked the
0: streets of soldier and he walked the I now and He had no money. No, no good at home. He walked the streets a soldier and he fought the world alone. And now it's
3: it's it's that kid. Everything he stands for is within himself. And he has an internal war going on, you know, with himself. People have been telling this kid he's no good for so long that he has believed it. He has been convinced of it, you know, Mm -hmm. so he walks the streets alone. You know, he could be with a million people. He could be with all his friends. But he doesn't realize
1: that. Hey, don't go anywhere. Krista makes a podcast will be right back after a few words from our sponsors.
0: Looking to elevate your music career? DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that enables musicians to distribute their music to online stores and streaming platforms such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Tidal, and many more. DistroKid collects earnings and payments, sending them to you, the artist. With DistroKid, artists unlock a world of possibilities. From easily paying collaborators with splits to securing your music with DistroLock, DistroKid covers all bases. Plus, you can promote your releases with Hyperfollow and create eye-catching visuals with the Spotify Canvas Generator, all for free. But that's not all. Introducing the DistroKid app, now available on iOS and Android. Artists can manage their releases, view streaming stats, and withdraw earnings, all from the palm of their hand. And for those looking to perfect their sound, check out Mixia. With its simple interface and customizable mastering options, Artists can make their music sound polished and professional within minutes. And don't forget about Instant Share, DistroKid's newest feature. Share large files securely with collaborators, producers, and more, ensuring your music streams at the highest quality. Ready to take your music to the next level? Download the DistroKid app and explore their suite of tools today. Plus, listeners can enjoy 30% off their first year by visiting distrokid.com slash VIP slash Demakes. That's distrokid.com slash VIP slash Demakes. Hey there, I'm Johnny
2: Christ from Revenge Sevenfold and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, Everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now.
0: And now, on with the show. So before we get into Chorus 1, I want to talk about a couple things here in uh, uh, pre-chorus 1. That- Pinch harmonic comes in again after no, no good at home, which which is just really cool. And at the last line, and he fought the world alone, and now it's the guitars really open up here to take us into the chorus. The the world, Do you remember Michael talking about those kind of dynamics and those little things? Yeah,
3: uh, actually. Um... We do the there's like that whole series of of builds like and that was yes. that, that was deliberate that was all very deliberate and Michael just wanted us to make it even more deliberate. He's like I get I get the drama and you know this is almost like orchestra like he goes I get it accentuate that make that more just just ramp it up and so we we almost got to the point where it felt uncomfortable And then, you know, we just started loosening it up a little bit and it, uh, yeah, he, he, that's where Michael was the greatest coach in the world. You know what I mean? On this record, he, he, he didn't want to change stuff. He just wanted to take it from level one. To level
0: ten, <laughs> you know, right? And and the producer is just so important to sometimes be able to tell the guitar player. I know your little noodly guitar part. You're you really you really like it, but it just doesn't fit. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, you yeah. Know, yeah. Some, some, sometimes you need to hear that because when Absolutely. you hear it from your bass player, you get really angry. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> That's when you sneak over to producers. Like, do you like that guitar part? No, I don't. Can you <laughs> yeah. please tell him? <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Let's go jet skiing first. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll talk yeah. about this later. <laughs> <Exactly>. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well. <laughs> The chorus comes quick here at 54 seconds we're in chorus one. 18 in life. You got it. 18 in life. You know, your crime is time and it's 18 in life to go 18 in life. You got it. 18 in life. You know, your crime is time and it's 18 in life to go. And I noticed all these choruses are all doubled. They're all double choruses. Yeah. Was there ever talk about this? Hey, maybe we should only just give them a teaser here on chorus one. Or was it always like that? No,
3: because it was really quick and it was just, it was a short message. Uh, so we, we felt that this was the right length, you know what I mean? It just because yeah. sometimes you know a lot, lot of, lot of stuff just calls for a single chorus first, and then a double chorus out. But yeah, yeah, it, it just it, we never thought about shortening it. I mean, the message was really quick, and the chorus is really short,
0: you know, and in, in the scope of the song. You just don't see that a lot on a first chorus, yeah. you know. And it's it, when I, when I do, it, it always it always kind of jumps out at me. The harmonies are really subtle in this song, is in in the chorus here. It's the only time you get harmonies. They're really subtle, but they're cool. And the lead vocal almost sounds double track. Do you recall if it was it the lead, was the vocals yeah, double tracked? It was okay. Okay, uh, you're getting harmonies only on the 18 in life. You got it. And again, talking about that haunting guitar riff, the harmonies here are are haunting. Mm. Who did the harmonies on 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 that part?
3: I, be- I believe Scotty Hill sang those harmonies I know I didn't do it on that this song okay but yeah I believe that was Scotty and um it, it might have been Scotty and Snake I know that they do it live uh um, yeah but I'm I'm not 100% sure
0: I mean, there could have been a there could have been a, a ton of different uh, note choices or harmonies. there. I think what you picked was perfect. It's subtle; it doesn't stick out. But without it, there you would notice it being gone. I love harmonies like that. Yeah, you know, the this chorus is heavy in its own right, but it's not as heavy as the pre-chorus. Uh, the guitars are distorted, but they're playing arpeggiated picking pattern. Uh, that guitar is off to the left. The other guitar right is, is got these big chords. And the bass sounds great here, holding down the bottom end. I'd love the bass tone on that. Thanks. Do you recall uh, working on that? Was that? Did you come in with a bass sound already as a, as a young musician? Or did, did Michael uh, help you cultivate that?
3: Michael helped me. Because I mean, all my equipment that I had at that point up to that point was shit. Everything was falling apart. I went into the studio. <laughs> I had a beat up PV head, a homemade cabinet um, with 215s in it, and that would, it was just so boomy and awful sounding. So Michael's like, let's get you through 4 tens and one fifteen. So we changed to that. and then he had an SWR head with the separate crossovers for each string and we we dialed in this old p i got a 78 uh mocha p bass that i have played oh, cool. yeah i have played on everything and actually i only played a little on this newest record i have played this this other p bass and a uh, specter but um yeah it, we we worked on it a lot like we worked at least a day on getting that tone right because he just kept asking me he's like what he goes, give me examples of bass tones you like, and I go, I love the h- how clear Paul McCartney's bass is, his tone, but I love the how vicious Gene Simmons' bass tone is, and I said if we could get a uh, mix in Dennis Dunaway from Alice Cooper, if we could get settle somewhere in there, I, I want it to sound like. Very percussive, like a piano. But if you're playing with the pedals on the piano, smash to the ground, you know, so it's just wide <laughs> yeah. open. And so that's what we did. we worked on that for a few, well, a good day, day and a half. And then uh, that's what we came up with.
0: Well, I'll tell you what my first professional record did and I'm sure you could attest to this looking back uh it really got me to to listen not only to myself but to the rest of the band it wasn't all about me now we're on a click track now I'm going wow yeah you know I never knew the terms play behind the beat play ahead of the beat right and you're and you're, lear- you're learning those things that just continue in your career to just uh sure. to develop and it yep. is it's so awesome um at the end of chorus one 18 in life to go and it's like a OEOEO that sebastian does and then there's i don't know if he's saying it's almost like a sigh of relief it's like sigh again it's one of those yeah do you recall I, what do what
3: i think i think that was just in the moment type of thing
0: right yeah. okay and I mean, maybe had, the maybe
3: he had a leak i don't know
0: <laughs> <laughs> did uh did did michael mix the record yeah yep he did yeah. okay so maybe maybe he left it in there um, <laughs> but uh at the very end of the chorus there's a dual harmony guitar part that comes in one pan left and one pan right just real quick there's just a, a little bit a little bit of uh a nuance there before verse two <laughs> in his heartbeat his veins burned gasoline it kept his motor running but it never kept him clean they say he loved adventure ricky's the wild one he married trouble had a courtship with a gun so there we're talking about that gun familiar it's yeah. actually in the lyric yeah pretty cool uh, cool uh, lyrics here
3: yeah and it the, now it starts to point out his issues you know what i mean he's obviously drinking he's obviously drinking and things running through this guy are bad Killing his heartbeat, his veins burn gasoline. It, it kind of says it there. Everything in him running through him. That, that that's kind of metaphor for this guy's
0: soul. Well, at the end, of course, one something I didn't mention: the, the guitar pan left is doing these stabs on the one, and that continues into verse two. I love those little stabs. Yeah. It's not there in verse one, no. and that's just the song's just building. <laughs>
2: Me his face
0: gasoline. you recall that happening with michael michael
3: that's michael he he goes it's aw- it's he, awesome he goes it's awesome. i want you guys to look at uh and I'm, I'm paraphrasing but he said i want you guys to approach a song as a set of stairs and every part you're stepping up every part until you get to the top of the stairs and that just resonated to to snake and I especially as songwriters you know it's like okay we get this so we added that those stabs in there and then I kind of played off what the guys were doing and if you hear it it's almost a counterpoint between the bass and yes and the yes. guitars just for that one little snippet in there and then it, yeah. it goes back to just the regular uh you know the re- regular uh, pattern but yeah th- this is one of those songs where when it get we get to it in the set, I get really excited because I just love playing that bass line. I love it because it there's just there's so many dimensions and textures to it. You know, you
0: you should be really proud of it. It's Thanks, really man. it's really it's really good. Um, in between, it kept his motor running, but never kept him clean. Those big guitars come in, like they came in in verse one. But what's interesting here, they don't have the impact of verse one because the second verse is more rocking. Mm. But but they're but they're still there, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, which 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 is great. But it's interesting talking about the song building. This doesn't really lift it there. It's there. It doesn't have the impact of verse one. But it's but it's cool that it doesn't here and in, right. in, in, in this particular section. The second half, uh, the guitars go eighth note again with those chord stabs like chink chink chin, and, and, and the stabs happen um on Ricky's The Wild One there's a pinch harmonic off to the right there uh on He Married Trouble uh there's a really cool delay on Sebastian's voice on just on the word trouble there Now, I'm sure Michael had something to do with that in in, in the mixing stage. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. In the last line, there's a, a subtle pinch harmonic, very subtle, off to the right. So talking about the song building, there's a bunch of little uh, ear candy moments that are happening here at the back half of verse two.
3: Yeah, yeah, and, that, and that's Michael with suggestions and and yeah, just throw this in there. And then it, it was it's great because uh, as you know, when creativity is infectious, and when someone starts coming up with stuff that that just spurs something in your own head, you know? So I, I just yeah. remember the song, like stuff that we hadn't already done and stuff that we haven't had set in stone, didn't have set in stone. It, 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 like these little creative bursts, boom, boom, boom would pop up. And I, I would imagine there was a lot more on there. Michael had to weed through and just pick the best out of them, you
0: know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's better to have more than less. Uh, I love pre-chorus too, Rachel. could have easily went back to pre-chorus one he had no money no no good at home walk the streets a soldier but the lyrics here because and i feel uh the because you're telling a story here that it had to be a different set of lyrics Mm. which is almost a little scary in a sense because you want that familiarity you want the audience to be able to sing a lyric they've already heard but i think it was integral i think it was it had to be different for pre-chorus too
3: i agree um we we tend to do that a lot when we're when we're have a story that's pretty detailed and you because sometimes when you go back and use this the first B verse again, it mm-hmm. kind of cuts the story off. We could have maybe left it, but we still had the bridge to get to the lyrics and the bridge. So yeah, we felt that it was necessary to have continual lyrics throughout this whole song.
0: And what's so cool with me doing this show and breaking it down is uh, how many times have I heard "18 in Life" in my life, and I never <laughs> really realized, wow, these are these are different the pre-choruses. But it has to be for for this song. It's 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 so cool. The lyric is "Bang, bang, shoot 'em up." So you get another uh, yeah. uh, gun reference in there. "Bang, bang, shoot 'em up." The party never ends. You can't think of dying. When the bottle's your best friend and now it's yeah. So you're getting you're getting his troubles again coming in here on this. Yeah, place.
3: and it's like, you know, bang, bang, shoot him up, the party never ends. It's like, you know, he's not really taking this seriously. He's a, he's not taking himself seriously. It's like every everything's a party and waving a gun around like an idiot, you know what I mean? Because he he's he's so deep down in his own darkness and and with with the bottle or whatever, you know? And, and a lot of stuff is metaphor, but um, yeah, it, it's just showing how
0: dark things
3: really are for the character.
0: I'll tell you something else I love, and, and, and you know that this was done done analog because there's no copy and pasting going on here. I talk about that a lot on this show. I like the now it's on this pre-chorus is different than the first one. Sebastian goes up there, mm-hmm. it lifts the song. Do you remember Michael talking about those things of how, how it's got to continue with the theme of building the song?
3: Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember him saying, you don't want everything to be exactly the same because you guys will be robots. You know, this isn't what you guys are, you know, th- not at all. That always kept us th- kind of thinking ahead of ourselves in a good way, mm-hmm. not getting ahead of ourselves, but thinking ahead of ourselves and and just thinking of what is going to make this part better. And th- that's why there, there's little things that are different. You know what I, I always equated it to, it's like, you've been playing a song, a song you guys have been doing say fucking 15 years yeah and you play it live i guarantee you you are not playing it this way now than you were 15 (laughs) years ago you know what i mean yep because you you keep hearing stuff and you're like oh man this is kind of cool you you know you have to stay within a parameter or people are going to be like "What, what is he doing you know but yeah it's the same way but in a shorter space of time within a sure soul, sure you
0: know? that's a that, that's a great analogy and i've i've uh i've had songs come on shuffle before of an album or a song i haven't heard of my band forever i go oh i don't sing it like that anymore you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly it- <laughs> exactly <laughs> and sometimes sometimes the fans will call you out for it too i've had that happen uh, yeah. but uh yeah we get we get i but i i love where where it goes the, the now it's changes on that uh, pre-chorus it, it, it's great it just lifts into chorus too Here's something else. There's so much going on in the story here with the lyrics in all the verses and the bridge and everything that I love that the chorus is the same every time mm-hmm. because you don't need any more information. I think it's genius. I never realized that until I started studying this. It's just Oh, that's it, funny, yeah. Yeah. You 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 can't put any more information there. You already have the song. You just have to to drive home the hook. 18 in life, you got it, 18 in life, you know. So chorus two is exactly the same. On 18 and Life to Go, the fourth line, the melody goes up here. It's different from chorus one. Love that. harmonies are the same as chorus one they're very subtle in the same places um and then at the very end it says, and it's 18 in life to go and there's like a yeah that uh, sebastian lets out and there's a killer bass run that leads into the bridge it's super loud and crisp and i'm sure (laughs) michael michael floored that there but but man your tone's ripping there
3: thanks yeah it, it it he he got exactly what i was hearing in my head he got that tone that that I didn't want you to just feel the bass. I wanted you actually be able to hear the notes. And and he was into that idea because a lot of a lot of bands that came out back then, you know, unless it was like a Billy Sheehan or something like that, you really just felt the bass more than anything. And and I want it to be you know when I listen to Kiss I hear Gene's walking bass lines and and, and whatnot
0: I call it I call it lead bass yeah. I got I got a guy I got a guy in my band he's a, he's a frustrated guitar player called lead bass <laughs> Right Yeah So and, and, and I
3: always tell people like like bass young bass players that ask for advice I go know your place in a song You know you're not gonna like if you if the guitar player played a solo from the first downbeat to the last one, you're going to be pissed. I said, you have to know how not to get in the way of the song and, and you could do really cool shit in that time, but you cannot get in the way of the song because the melody and the, the structure, the, the, the end product, the end result of the song is the most important thing, not just one of its components.
0: Pick your spots and know what not to play. That's the hardest. That's the hardest lesson. And then get the hell out of the
3: way and let other yeah. other things <laughs> talk and let big people talk.
0: <laughs> exactly. Well, this bridge is is probably, uh, you know, probably one of my favorite parts of the song. It's just awesome.
2: As it is, we'll have-
0: Accidents will happen. They all heard Ricky say he fired his six shot to the wind. That child blew a child away. And that line right there, that's the surprising line that got on MTV to me. That's some yeah. pretty graphic imagery. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Uh, it's kind of this is where everything comes to a climax. You know, it's like accidents will happen. They heard, Rick, you know, he just like he's so nonchalant about what's about to happen, or it's kind of putting the, the cart before the horse. It's like accidents will happen. I all heard Ricky say, you know, it could have been said when, or after he fired his six shot, we're, we're uh, implying like it's after he fired the bullet and killed his friend. He was like, accidents will happen. You know what I mean? And just took it like with a grain of salt. And that's, a, it's it's implying uh the the timeline is kind of reversed but i always love stuff like that
0: well i'll tell you else. what what is awesome about this bridge is uh the guitar panned off to the right is doing this low register like counter melody part there yeah that's just that only happens that time in the song it's very different texture and feel Mm -hmm. again was that something you recall being the demo or was that something michael orchestrated in the studio with you guys
3: man that's another let's go let's roll the tape on because i'm not i i don't i think that that was a suggestion from michael but i'm not 100 sure all i know is i kind of weaved in and out of that on on the base just little things here and there i'd pick up some part of the riff and then just Lay back on uh, other parts. So,
0: in all due respect to you, you know, uh, us musicians, we don't sit around and listen to our own stuff. So, I'm I'm telling you stuff about your summer. You're probably going, "Wait, what are you talking?" Yeah, now,
3: yeah. <laughs> As it comes up, and here's a funny thing. I'm not thinking of the recording. I'm thinking, wait. Okay. How do you so, do it live? So snake stands to my right on stage. Scotty stands to my left. Who <laughs> played that? You know, I know yeah. I hear it every night, but I'm and like, I got
0: a drummer behind me pounding away at 110 yeah. dB. I don't know what's going <laughs> yeah, on. Exactly. <laughs> well, the very last line, um, the guitar opens up on "Child," blew a child away, mm-hmm. and that's essentially what's like the start of the guitar solo yeah. and that soaring vocal that takes us into the guitar solo. Yeah. The guitar solo is 16 bars. The solo is panned pretty hard off to the left. And I love that with two guitar bands, mm-hmm. you know, Judas Priest, the Iron Maidens, where you really get that separation. You get to hear the nuances of each guitar player. So it's just not just carbon copy stereo guitars doing the exact same yeah. thing. Yeah. And, um, the guitar on the right is playing big chords and, um, uh, the bass is mimicking the guitar arpeggio part from the choruses uh, because the the solo uh, section's the same progression uh, as the chorus and that's awesome how you kind of change there in that part oh
3: thanks i i wanted to lay back a little bit but i didn't want it to be boring the solo that's that's scotty hill the idea to start the solo that early to this day still blows my mind because it's it's
0: odd, it's right?
3: Really odd, but it's so Scotty Hill and just all right. That's like somebody revving a car. You know what I mean? Revving their engine <laughs> before they yeah. take before light goes green, and that that always blew my mind. I'm just like, man, what an awesome idea that was. That and it just. It really sets it up.
0: I never thought. Again, I've heard this song hundreds, hundreds upon hundreds of times, mm-hmm. and I it never dawned on me until I, I really broke. It. Oh, wow! That guitar solo comes in in the oddest of places, yeah. but it works. It really it's so good. Really
3: does work. Yep.
0: Yeah. Well, there's a yeah, 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 that happens before uh, chorus three. And chorus three, again, is just, you know, uh, what I'm calling a double chorus, but it's the same as uh, chorus one and two. Uh, On the fourth line, again, 18 in life to go. He says, go, whoa, it changes there from chorus two again, just another subtle change. Mm -hmm. And then on the very last line, uh, and it's 18 in life to go, the guitar solo. Comes in, it's panned right. It's and uh, which the, the other solos were kind of panned left, so it's interesting. Now your ear is taking you over here. It's panned off to the right. It's for 16 bars at, on the outro here, and at, at the very end, there's some uh, cool vocal uh, operatics that that happen before the song ends. You're doing some cool little bass, and the song just kind of kind of dissolves and, uh, and and brings us to the end of it. this mix come back and what did you think of it
3: yeah well snake and i were there for the mix we always stay till the very last day of everything so we we heard it a bunch but when we got it mastered back i was just like holy shit like just listening to it in headphones and then i cranked it on my stereo and i was like this is unbelievable this is like
0: it's a it's a league
3: man yeah And, and and here's something really funny we were kids. This is the first professional album we ever did. When we demoed this song, it was an electric guitar doing the beginning. And that's that. So Michael had Snake overdub uh, an acoustic guitar with it. Okay, I was going to ask. I was okay. so incredibly <laughs> bummed out. And I was like, we're not going to be able to do that live. And I was, I was so bummed out to the point where Michael came to my hotel room and was like, dude, what's going on? And I'm like, "How are we going to play this live, man?" I said he goes, "This is production. This is production. It's not going to sound like there's another guy up there. It's just going to make this part bigger. You have to trust me."
0: And do you know why it's so good? Why it's so good? Not to cut you off. I have to interject is because I had it written down here at the top. I hear acoustics. I'm like, "I really thought that it was the chorus effect on the guitar. It is so subtle. I can yeah. hear it, yeah. but but you can't." And yep. and it doesn't matter about live. He was, he was right, but they are there. Yeah. They are there. Yeah. He's like, okay. he's
3: like, he goes, this is, this is texture. I'm adding texture to this guitar. And he goes, it's not going to be anything where it's a standout guitar part. It's going to be exactly what he's playing. It would be no different than I, if I had him double the guitar on the same guitar it's just adding more dimension. And I was like, I right, I trust you. I was still mad. But then when I heard it, I was like, I told Michael, I was like, dude, you're so right. This is unbelievable.
0: Well, and also acoustic guitars are percussive. Yes. You know, you're here, you're hearing the pick. Yep. Yep.
4: He said exactly that, dude.
0: Well, um, we're going to wrap up here in a moment, but before we go, uh, what would you like to leave the listeners with what you got coming up? The new record, any tours what's happening? Yeah,
3: we have a new record. Um, we have a a residency in Las Vegas with the Scorpions that starts at the end of March. It's for nine shows. We're really excited because we're all Scorps fans, you know, it's just (laughs) just, going to be killer. Um, And yeah, we got a, got a lot of shows planned for this year, a lot of traveling. um, And we're working on this new record and we're going to get, get some new music out to everyone very soon
0: very cool well thank you so much man i yeah, really appreciate you taking the time today to this is great this was a lot
3: of fun man I, this is like one of the most fun some of the most fun i've ever had on the podcast this is great
0: that means a lot thank you so much yeah man
1: there's lots more christa makes a podcast after a few words from our sponsors hello everybody i'm bruce like our concerts on the corner series, whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music. We think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on the corner of gray street. Hey, Chris makes a podcast producer, Chris Fafalius here. You may have heard me talk about my band punchline before, Maybe you already know us, or maybe you're hearing about us for the first time right now. It doesn't matter. No matter what your relationship with Punchline is, I will absolutely guarantee that you'll love our new podcast, A Band Called Punchline. Starting with our humble beginnings in a small town in southwestern Pennsylvania in 1997, we're telling the hilarious, strange, and hopefully inspiring story of the 25-plus years of our band in the most honest way possible, podcast style. A Band Called Punchline is an audio documentary available now wherever you get your pods. So, subscribe and let me and my friends share a wild, entertaining, unique, and wonderful tale of music and perseverance unlike any other that's still being written today.
2: As
0: we near the end
2: of the show, here's a band you might not know.
0: Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. If you'd like your band to be considered for Krista makes a podcast, all you have to do is email your song via MP3 only and bio to band you might not know at gmail.com. This week's featured artist is Downcast, a punk rock band from the UK. They have a brand new record out called I Saw Hell When I Was With You. You can find their music on Spotify, and here's a snippet of their song, Catharsis. The wrap with Chris
2: and
3: Chris.
1: Another episode right up your alley, Chris.
0: That's right. My uh, '80s metal, uh, heavy metal dreams are coming true on Chris. To makes a podcast. It's it's awesome, and Rachel couldn't have been uh, any cooler.
1: I seriously agree. A lot of these '80s metal dudes that we've had—no offense to them—they've all been awesome, awesome musicians, great storytellers, and stuff. But I feel like there's always a little bit of like—I don't want to call it. I don't want to call it arrogance I want to call it like it's just like an attitude it's like an 80s metal attitude and I felt like Rachel Bolin is like the most humble 80s metal guy that I've ever heard talk on a podcast you feel that way?
0: I, I, I really do He like I said he, he couldn't have been any cooler uh, super down to earth and uh, for those listeners that don't know I mean usually you associate the face of the band the singer in this case Sebastian Bach uh, w- with writing the songs and uh, that's not the case here you know uh, Dave the Snake Sabo uh, the guitarist and Rachel uh, wrote the lyrics and the music for all these Skid Row songs all, all all the hits and you know I felt that they were they stood apart from their uh, 80s and, and early 90s uh, counterparts so they had a little little more depth to them it wasn't all sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And uh, there, there's a story here behind 18 in life. And it's funny in the episode, Rachel even said, yeah, it's something about, the, you know, something about Jersey. This is the way we are. We tell stories, you know? And again, it's that Brian Fallon mentioned that on his episode, the Bruce Springsteen thing. I don't know what it is about Jersey, but, uh, you know, there, there's a story behind 18 in life that uh, sets it apart from what else was going on in the uh, heavy metal, hair metal genre of the 80s.
1: Yeah, I mean, aside from it being great musically and melodically, there's a story it sucks you in when you listen to this song. Yeah, that's something maybe you'll see a lot of times in country music. I feel like storytelling's very commonplace in country music, but you're right, man, especially in the 80s metal, especially like the cheesy 80s metal. There was just, like you said, it's sex and drugs and whatever, and it's kind of fluff in a way but not this this is like a heavy serious story and I think people really latched on to that
0: yeah and I'm, I'm kind of surprised that no country artist a pop country artist has, has covered this song I think it would translate really well to, to to pop country radio but but yeah you know and uh during the episode I mentioned to Rachel I was uh, looking back really surprised that MTV touched this you know it references shooting yeah. and a gun and killing a child in this and pretty heavy for for the time uh, e- even probably more heavier now considering everything that. That's that's gone on with uh, uh, guns and stuff in, in the U.S. So uh, pretty pretty surprised that MTV aired this back in the day.
1: And I respected him for for saying too that if you're gonna tell a story to a large audience, you have to tell it responsibly. I feel like a lot of his contemporaries and peers would be like, "Nah, man, I'm just gonna say what I'm gonna say." <laughs> but he knows. Yeah.
0: And I, I wasn't trying to take anything away with my comments before about the songwriting with Sebastian Bach. I mean, the guy could sing the telephone book and just, I mean, oh, yeah. the pipes on him. He really, really sold this lyric and sold this song. So pro, uh, props to the whole band. But uh, yeah, I, I always, always liked the song. I felt that it was a good, it bridged the gap between their first single of the record Youth Gone Wild and The Ballad, I Remember You, which was the third single. This was kind of right there in the sweet spot in the middle of them. And uh, I think they picked the... The the greatest songs uh, the, put their best foot forward with this record. The story of going to uh, Minnesota to record with producer Michael Wagner was really cool. You know, they yeah. he he got into their psyches and said, "Hey, stop! We're not having fun. We're not being creative. Let's go, let's go skiing. Let's go jet skiing for a little bit, and and uh, and we'll and we'll get back and and uh, and start recording again when when we're fresh." That stuff about Michael Wagner was
1: awesome in this episode. Just the fact that he knew sometimes you got to get out of there, dude. I've been there, and I know you've been there, Chris. You've just been in the studio too long. You mm-hmm. need to get out of there sometimes. So I think that was a really good move to come back in there energized. Oh, yeah. Because, yeah, you don't want to make music sleepy or in a bad headspace or anything like that. I thought that was really really yeah. awesome that and was
0: prior cool. to this you know they had recorded but it was basically demos and here they are with Michael Wagner world renowned producer he did everybody uh, in the 80s and, and 90s on up and uh, he really appreciated those times he's talking about his bass tone and like how he was dialing it in and giving, giving Michael his influences to get the bass tone and then hearing the mix back for the first time at 18 like being blown away with little things like Michael saying we need to put acoustic guitar he's like we don't have an acoustic how are we going to do this live he's like trust me when he got it back, you didn't really hear him, but you felt him. You felt the percussiveness of it. And and uh, just the, you could hear it in his voice. the such fond memories of that time.
1: You know, Rachel is also a bassist. So I had that in common with him. But I felt like one more thing I had in common with him was that he and I would have done the same thing. When you're talking about Michael Wagner and his, you know, all his accomplishments as a producer. The thing that Rachel called out was like. You know he produced like the rock version of Janet Jackson Black Cat, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cuz when I was doing the research for this, I was like, "Damn, that's awesome." And, and I just love that he made mention of that too, cuz it rocks. It's yeah, awesome. Yeah, he,
0: you know, he was uh, known as an 80s metal guy, but uh Michael had had some good ears, man. He was uh he was one of the greatest uh, greatest producers.
1: Um, I like that you got into a little bass tone talk in this episode, you know. That's not something you talk about every episode as a bassist, you know. I don't want to get too deep into <laughs> talking about bass tone and gear and stuff. But I do agree that his bass sounds awesome on this song.
0: Bass sounds awesome and the parts are great. He, he uh, uh, really put some good parts down and it was really cool to hear him, you know, talking again to Michael Wagner about what he was going for sound wise and how he was able to achieve that. He learned so much and, uh, you know, he didn't have any good gear. They didn't have any money and you know, they're coming and they're using all this professional gear and it's uh, it's really where he found his sound.
1: And I think that he had, speaking of sound, he had very sound advice for any bassists out there. And I I feel this way strongly, too. But he said, as a bassist, you can't get in the way of the song. Mm -hmm. You know, you pick your moments. You can shine. You can definitely shine plenty of times in a song. But you also can't be... (laughs) <laughs> you know, thinking you're you're playing like lead bass through a whole song. Maybe Flea can get away f- away with that <laughs> once in a while, but yeah. but yeah, I think that
0: that's tasteful bass is important. Absolutely, and uh, something else about Shining, Chris. I love when people leave us a Shining review. Yeah, me too, man.
1: It makes me feel like I'm a shining star when someone goes on Apple Music or wherever and leaves us. Yeah. leaves us a review. You know, that helps more people find out about the podcast and helps us. Get all those guests that we want to get and you want us to
0: get. Absolutely. And for those who don't belong to our Krista Makes a Podcast Facebook group, please join. It's a lot of fun. And give me a follow on Instagram at less than Chris D. I'd like to talk to you.
1: Yeah, man. And speaking of joining, hey, if you're not part of our supporting cast maybe now's the time to join because our back catalog of after party episodes, ask somebody who's a supporting cast member, what they think of the after party. We put a lot of love into those episodes too. They come out weekly as, you know, kind of like supplementary to the podcast. Sometimes it has something to do with that week's episode. Sometimes it is something completely different, but it's always fun. It's uh, a lot of music talk and we have a lot of laughs on there. ChrisDamakes.com for a few bucks a month. You could help us continue making this podcast for all eternity at least well at least
4: while
0: Chris and I are here on this planet <laughs> Absolutely And uh, before we wrap here, just want to thank this week's guest Rachel Boland from Skid Row for sitting in with us. It was a lot of fun and we'll see you next week.